Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here uh, with you. We're just going to jump in and read the text. We're in the book of Romans. Uh, Again, this week we'll be there for uh, quite a while. So Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 20 is the text we're going to look at. So we'll start in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Uh, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in uh, in a human way. Six, "By uh, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil uh, that good may come as soon as people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. So my sons, uh, especially my oldest, have wanted an electric uh, quad forever, and in my uh, wonderful fatherness, I just have said no for years and years. Uh, no matter how many times they ask, I'm like, okay, no, okay, no, okay, no. And then later last year, Judah approached me again about the whole quad situation, uh, and he said this. He said, Dad, I've done some research. <laughs> he had about this certain quad. Dad, it's 24 volts, and the weight limit is 120 pounds. So it can handle me and Abel together. You won't have to worry about us fighting over who gets to use it because it's strong enough to handle both of us, and 24 volts means the battery lasts 42 minutes. We can both get a turn, okay? Then in Judah fashion, and Dad, yeah, I love your truck. There's points. (laughs) But it's too big to fit in the garage, so we have lots of extra space. Parking isn't really an issue anymore, so, I mean, that's worked out. And Dad, yes, son? Me and Abel have saved up money for the last two years, uh, birthdays and Christmas and when we decide to do our chores. Uh, you don't even have to spend any money. We could pitch in our money and we could get it. He gave this pitch in a brilliant way this last time. I have to admit it to him. It was, it was good. It was well thought out. It was fact-based. 
And what was so clever is he foresaw my objections before I even leveled them, and then he made counters to those objections uh, before I could even say anything, essentially leaving me with no reasons to say no. I still said no, but <laughs> no, no, my boy's got a quad for Christmas, so uh, he did. You make that good of an argument, you, you just, you win, so... Um, in this part of Romans, Paul is really making a similar type of um, answering things beforehand in his writing. He foresees some major pushback uh, to the case that he's been presenting so far. And what he's going to do is he's going to answer the questions or the pushback for the readers before there. So in this front section, what we see and why the wording looks so weird is he is he's naming questions ahead of time that people are going to have three or four of them, and he's going to answer those questions before they even get there. Specifically, these questions are meant to claim how humanity has some grounds to not be in trouble or be good uh, in God's eyes without actually doing what they're supposed to. So as we dig into the questions, I'll remind you of the progression so far because it's extremely important for this message, Paul claimed early in chapter one that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the explosive news of what God has sent Jesus to do for sinners, and that news can break into the hearts of the very worst sinner and do work for both Jew and Greek. His angle is in this part that the gospel can save the irreligious, immoral rebel who's just the worst of the worst. The power of God is great enough to save that guy. And the gospel can save the religious person who doesn't really think they need saving as well. After making that claim, Paul then set out to show us why we need saving, right? Because it's easy to say you need saving or there is salvation available, but then we're going, well, do I need to be saved? He's like, oh yeah, you definitely need to be saved. And he gives an unfiltered, unsanitized look at what sin does in our lives. For the irreligious person, uh, just broad strokes, uh, sin twists the thinking in the mind. It hardens our heart. And it begins to steal our humanity as our corruption becomes more and more and more heinous as we seek kind of worse and worse and more out there things to get what only we're meant to get from God. And for the, irre- the irreligious person who walks out in their sin and is not trusting in Jesus for the problem of it, what ends up happening with sin is it begins to create this harsh hypocrite who is calloused with a really critical heart. It creates a person who judges everyone around them While they kind of do the same things as they do, maybe they just do it in a more discreet or hidden way or believe that the things that they're doing, quote unquote, religiously uh, kind of give them uh, a clear, that their external rituals or habits make it okay that their heart is left unchanged. Hear that? The religious person will do some things. They just don't want Jesus to actually mess with their heart. Both situations are equally as, as dire, the irreligious and the religious. Why? Because they're both still under the wrath of God. Both of them will one day meet the justice of God for their sins with no special pardon, no loophole, no no special treatment will fix it. And that's what we've been calling the bad news of uh, sin in humanity. And that bad news prepares us for the unspeakably good news. Because of all that, Jesus has come to be our covering and our righteousness. If we call out to God to be saved, he will be faithful to save us. No matter how far we've gone or what we have done, we will be saved. If we confess and we repent, we will be saved. The judge, this is the beautiful part that we saw in chapter 2, the judge will actually become our justifier. Uh, the, the, The sin that we have committed will be paid in full by our Savior if we leave our irreligion and our religion to follow Jesus and put the full weight of our hope in him. 
So the questions that Paul foresees in the opening section of chapter 3, they come, a lot of them specifically from the things that happened in chapter 2. The religious Jews are really trying to find a way out. They're trying to find a way to kind of do what they wanted. Um, so, so in this, uh, the, the questions that we're going to see, we're going to see a group of people who again are going to try and defend their hearts away from God or defend the way that they're living without letting God actually affect that. The first question is going to be this. Paul, keep in mind these people are, the religious people, these questions are being raised from the perspective of they wanted to believe that being Jewish, being circumcised, and having the law given to them just kind of gave them a free pass. This is their perspective. We're kind of God's people, I mean, what you gonna do? He's not gonna turn on us, we're his. I mean, he didn't give those guys the law, he gave us the law. I mean, come on. And then we did the thing, right? If you're guys, and like that's definitely a sign that we're his, so the rest doesn't matter. This is the perspective. We have all of these things, we're right before God. Question one, Paul, are you saying that there's no advantage to being a Jew or getting circumcised? Are you, are you saying there, there's, there's no help? that being Jewish doesn't save us, and you're saying that circumcision is no guarantee of our salvation either, then what in the world is the advantage? What good is any of that? If Paul were writing this question to us, though, it would look differently. If you were writing it to us, uh, to us right now, to the modern religious context, it would read this way. Paul, if membership does not save us, if baptism doesn't guarantee that we're saved, and hearing the word regularly and coming to church regularly does not guarantee it either, then what in the world are we doing carrying on such things? Like, why do we do those things if they don't actually get us anything? See, many people put their confidence in the fact that they were baptized at a young age or at some point in time. Other people put their confidence in the fact that they're a church member. I've been a member for 40, 50 years. Of course I'm saved. Look at my membership. Or, I mean, do you know how many sermons I've heard? I've been to church so many times. I've been to, 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 more, sermon, or to more years of sermons than you have in years of life, and Jesus warns about this regularly in the New Testament when he speaks of this idea that the church community will be a community of people where there are tares and there are wheat. Where there are weeds that look like wheat and real wheat. In, in modern languages, there's going to be people around that are not Christians among the real Christians. Jesus warns, hey, be careful about being around all the Jesus-y stuff. Honoring God with your lips, but keeping your heart far, heart far from him. That is one of the most crucial things to show you if religion has captured you. Will you do a lot of stuff, but there's not a lot going on in your heart with God? That's a key sign of religion. Paul is pointing to Jesus' words, making a verbal confession or going around is no guarantee. What's in the heart determines whether we are actually redeemed. It shows if we are saved. Not joining a church not getting dunked in water or listening to preaching. They alone are not proof, and they were never meant to be proof of salvation. So we may expect Paul to say to this question, is there any advantage? You may expect him to go, no, not really. You don't really need to do that stuff. Instead, he says, yes, there's very much an advantage in every way. For a Christian, the church body or membership in the body is the place that we grow. We are not rebel alone Christians. We are called into a body. Church members pray for each other. They disciple each other. They encourage each other. They rebuke each other sometimes. They, they teach each other. They care for each other's needs. They make up the body of Christ, which is a good thing. 
Baptism is meant to be a visible representation of the redemption that Christ has already brought in someone's life. And it encourages the people around who've, who've watched that person live their life forever in a certain way as they see them get in the water and realize that they've been made new and they are born again. They get to worship God. Look at what God did. We knew that guy. He was not saved before, but he is now. Praise God for that. And it encourages the body to look at their own lives. I remember when I declared my faith. I, I remember when I got in the water and declared the reality of what Jesus has done for me. And the word of God shows us the Father regularly. See, those are beautiful and valuable and worthy things to contend for, church membership and baptism and hearing preaching. They're wonderful things. His point is not throw the baby out with the, bo- the bathwater. His point is keep those things. They help you grow as a body. It's actually rebellious and a sign that you don't belong to God if you don't do any of those things. Just don't ever think that one of those saved you. Only Jesus saves. You'll see this in Jesus' words all over the New Testament. He's the only door. He's the only path. He's the only way to salvation. Do all of those things. Just please don't think they saved you. Question two, does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He's asking, does the rebellious Jew mean something about how good God is? In the Old Testament, God made a promise to Abraham's descendants, but Paul is claiming those same Jewish descendants are guilty now. Does the Jews' lack of faith make God a liar who is unfaithful to them? Paul rejects this idea emphatically. Of course not. No way. He's rejecting the idea that for God to be faithful, he must accept Israel, the Jewish people, regardless of how they act or how they live. God will not make himself a liar by becoming a false judge. He has promised to Abraham was he would, uh, if they would love God and follow him, that God would be faithful to them. It was never just because you're Jewish, you get a pass and can do whatever you want. This thought process would correlate to the age-old line of thinking that says if God is really loving then he would not condemn people for their sin, right? We modernize it to where it's not Jewish. We, we modernize it in a, in a new way. If he's merciful, if he's kind, if he's really not, not a capricious, horrible, terrible God, then, then he would not condemn people. His love would win and everyone would just be okay. See, what this does is it's an attempt to try and push God in the corner to claim that he needs to defend his character by allowing sinful people to escape judgment. Do you see that? God, defend yourself. He's the only one that doesn't need defending. Paul doubles down here saying even, uh, saying God will be true even if everyone is a liar, meaning God will not impugn his character. If no one repents and follows Jesus, he's not going to impugn his character. It does not mean that he's unfaithful because he won't unpardon unfaithful people. Question three, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, wouldn't it be unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? The question is basically asking, are we doing God a favor by sinning? Are we doing him a solid? Right? If our sin shows God's holiness, then I mean, I'm showing that he's pretty holy, right? If our sin shows how merciful and loving and kind and good he is, aren't we just making God look better by committing more sin? Like we're just making him like, he's so much more awesome because I mean, look at what I did. 
Are we just increasing the perception of his love? And Paul's going to bounce back to this in Romans chapter 6, so we'll spend more time with this mindset. But, but he bounces back when he, when he asks, should we sin all the more so that grace should abound? The answer is, of course not. That is a wicked and twisted line of thinking. God has made a way to redeem sinners, to pay for their cosmic treason. That's what sin is. He has sent Jesus to die in our place to pay the full bill for the sin that he didn't commit. And all you humanity has to do is call out to be saved and receive it. They have to confess their sin and need for a savior, repent from their sin and follow Jesus. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to pay for their debt. They just call out, Jesus, I I want you to stand in my place. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I want to follow you instead of myself. I can't make up for any of that. It's as if humanity hears this immeasurably kind offer for pardon. There is a way, and they hear about this way, and, and they say, okay, I hear your way, and we can do that. Or, what if we keep sinning? And you, you actually wouldn't hear it as, what if we keep sinning? Here's what we would hear it as. What if we just keep being us? What if I honor my truest self? What, what if I just keep doing me and, and I honor who you, like you're the creator and you wired me and what, I'm just going to honor how you've wired me. I'm going to walk out the person that you've made and it's going to honor you more anyway. And then when it's all said and done, because I'm honoring you through honoring who I really am, you just still forgive us. And it's going to make you look even more kind. I mean, look at the mercy and the pardon of this God who will let love win in all cases. Again, this line of reasoning tries to paint God as more loving by turning himself into a liar. Friends, he could not be more loving. He has made a way when we deserve none. The idea that we deserve another or a different or a loophole is just another layer of rebellion in our hearts that you and I have all done at some point or the other. Paul basically says this is insanity and wickedness by no means. Absolutely not. Question four. Are religious people any better off then? Valid question, because I think at some point we've probably all asked it. Right, parents with a two-year-old trying to get screaming kids in the car to come to church going, is this worth any of it? The question is one that we wrestled with at some point. Are church-going folk with religious routines any better off than irreligious people who don't follow God at all? That's a question under the question. Paul answers as succinctly as possible. No. I didn't see that one coming. No, they're not. Why? Well, because all are under sin and no one is clean. Religion doesn't clean you. I vividly remember um, sitting in a Mexican restaurant with my grandma and grandpa probably about 10 years ago. Um, early on in our church days and we were talking faith and I was sharing the gospel with them, sharing how Christ's work is the only way to redemption. His finished work, nothing else. He is the only way that going to church and giving money and doing good deeds and being what you consider a good person or a conservative person or a moral person is not anything that will buy your redemption. Jesus is the only way. And I watched my grandfather, who's been a church member for, like, I guess all of his life, 
He served in more committees than I could probably count. He served food to the least of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. He showed up like clockwork to about every event imaginable in the church. He's given money and he's given time and he's given effort. I watched him as I said, Jesus is the only way to get visibly angry. And hear this. He says, are you telling me all I've done for all of my life? All the good, all the help. I've tried to help so many people. Are you telling me all the the effort and the money and the help and the showing up and the doing and the good deeds and boy, I've been doing this for way longer than you've been alive. You tell me all that isn't worth anything. Said, so as far as making you right with God for your sin, that's exactly what I'm saying. No amount of effort, no amount of dollars, no amount of morality, no amount of conservatism. There's only throwing the full weight of your belief into the person and work of Christ that will do. In that spot, Christ will save and he will transform you. Nothing else will do. My grandfather, if I remembered right, I don't want to embellish a story. I'm pretty sure he slammed his hands down on the table. This was the chips and salsa part, so we had a, we had a long ride. He said, I just can't accept that. bothered, angry. You can't tell me that all that I've done is worth nothing. It is, Grandpa. The good stuff, since then, has changed churches. Side note, there are beautiful churches around. Wonderful, wonderful communities of God here and in other cities. There are places that call themselves churches and they're going to drag a whole lot of people to wrath. He switched to a church that preaches the gospel. It's actually Garrett's dad's church. And somewhere along the line, I have no idea when, he doesn't, work, he doesn't rest in his work anymore. He rests in Jesus. Here's the cool part. He still does all the other stuff. He just does it as a son now. Like, you don't quit that stuff. I think it saves you. This is what Paul is getting after. Religion is good. It's valuable. Routines, faithfulness, good deeds, outward signs, beautiful. They're just not salvific. They were never meant to clean you. They were always meant to be how you lived after Jesus washed you. The reason that they are worthless to save us they do not fix the sin that we are all under. Great routines, great things to do. There, there's beauty in the repetition of faith. The repetition of faith just will never clean the sin. The core of Christianity is always this. You could never save yourself, never. That's why God had to send Jesus. Because he actually could. To, to think that routines or religion or membership or other stuff will save you is to say, Jesus, I got it, man. Like, it's great that you did that. For the super bad people, they can use that. But I, like, look at this stuff, though, man. I got my side. Thank you for saving them. It's not going to work out well. Paul's used the last sections to talk first 
about irreligious people. That's what we saw in the end of chapter 1. And then he speaks to religious ones in chapter 2. Now what Paul's going to do is he's not speaking to one or the other anymore. He's going to merge the groups back together and talk about their commonality. Here is the irreligious and religious person's problem. Sin. What we see in verse 10 through 20 is a picture of what sin has done. And we have to admit, it's been a hard road seeing uh, midway through chapter 1 until now. There's been some hard and difficult stuff. Here's just kind of a a synthesis of what sin does in the hearts of men and women in in a big picture view. Not what it does in the rebel and the irreligious and all that. Or what it does in the church uh, member who's been a church member all of its life. Here is what sin does in every man born of woman. Paul wants us to walk deeper to where we just don't admit that we're sinners, but we grasp the reality of the effects of sinfulness. Does that make sense? It's one thing to go, hey, I sinned. It's another thing to begin to understand what sin actually does in you. Because Paul wants us us to get into a spot where we begin to hate sin because we see what it does. Caveat, it's easy to, he, to, to hate your neighbor's sin. Paul wants you to hate your own. To open your eyes to the point where you begin to wage war on the remnants of sin left in your heart. The beauty of Christianity is Jesus pays it full if we are believing in him. We are not perfect people. Ask the whole world who sees us. Paul wants us to go the remnants of sin that are still left. We want to wage war on those. Thank God that you are forgiven wage war on the remnants that are still there. Paul opens by sharing our universal status. None of us are righteous. If you'll flip through verses 10 through 11 with me, none are righteous, not one. We are guilty before a just and holy God, every one of us by nature. There's no person who's above the fray. There's no person who is outside of this. No person will ever live a life that goes, I've got enough good deeds to win. I can fix this. Like I've been doing the balancing of accounts. And like, you know, yesterday I did a couple really nice things for old people. And so like on my, my account, like I'm in the positive, I'm good. There's no person who will have the righteousness of their own to deal with the problem of their sin. None are righteous. Verse 11, he says, no one understands Well, sin has corrupted our thinking at a core level. Because sin has corrupted us at a core level, we misunderstand God, the truths of God. It's why we think he's capricious and mean when we don't understand he's actually trying to save us from heartache and and, and free us up to, to worship. We don't understand. Sin affects our thinking. This also means that the intellectual will never reason their way to God. Your thinking will never get you there. Verse 11 also says no one seeks after God. Sin has corrupted us to a godless state. No one chases God. There's an idea that we are all morally neutral, except Hitler. And so the morally neutral ones, we're just running after God. We're going to get it figured out when the reality is we're running away from God going, I will fight you for who's in control of my life. Don't tell me what to do. Don't touch my money. Don't tell me how to treat my wife. Don't tell me how many hours to work. We're not running towards him. We are running away. No one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 12, it says, all have turned away. Sin has corrupted our wills. 
what we want. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray and need the shepherd to come. None have lived a good life. None is without need. So he begins to say these big statements, no one understands. Like, we don't get the truth of God. No one seeks after God. We're not morally neutral just running after him, and we're going to, like, hear the perfect song, and then everything's going to be good. We've all turned away. Verse 13 and 14, then he begins to talk about our speech. The throat is an open grave. Like that one? They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Sin has corrupted what we say. There's ever a time that it's easy to see. It's probably right now. There's not one of us who could stand here and be like, I think that you're wrong. We talk so sweet to each other. Our words often show the depth of the brokenness in our heart. So what we do because of this, inside there's this brokenness, so we speak the death inside out to other people. We tear people down. We sow deception. No matter how many times we say sorry or I didn't mean it, it wasn't the real me who said that, it shows the brokenness in us when we say things to each other. Hear the reality. Our Father who is love, we have rejected in our sin, and because of that rejection, we spread curses and bitterness. The sickness of our hearts regularly flies out of our mouth. I don't think that one's very hard to prove. Verse 15 through 17, we're quick to shed blood. You hear that and go, man, I'm a pacifist. I'm scared. I don't don't shed blood. Maybe not physically. Look how quickly we'll let people have it when we don't get our way, though. We lash out in anger when we don't get our way or if we don't think that we get what we deserve, whether we do it in outward realities of what we say or, or maybe it's just how we feel towards them. Parents, look, at, look when you think your kid's not treated right. Oh, no. When that guy who's just worthless at work gets the promotion, you gotta be kidding me, Right? We, by nature, will lash out, quick to run in with our words. When what we think we deserve, we don't get. Here's the reality. We're so lost now that our culture applauds this, though. They're so brave. They're so strong. Look at them stand up for themselves. It's bold. It's beautiful. They know who they are. Paul says that bravery and boldness is a propensity to shed blood and it destroys everyone. This is what sin does. Peace isn't our natural disposition. Not when people get in our way, at least. And this has led to an awful path of ruin and misery for us to live in. In outrage culture, like you know it's true. It's a spot-on critique of what we see. And let's just be honest. It's a spot-on critique in... When someone catches us on the wrong day, it's a spot-on critique of what we'll say or think about them as well. Verse 18 then serves as a summary statement for all that Paul has said in verses 10 through 17. Right? He opens up, no one is good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Keep in mind when you go, well, what's good? God is good. 
all fall short. No one seeks God. All of this points to when he talks about what it does in our speech and our heart and how we treat each other. No one's good. No one seeks God. And really, it's because just no one fears him. We've lost reverence for him. In our lostness and our sin and our brokenness, we have lost all reverence. These verses show us a heavy and dark critique on humanity. All lost? Bloodshed? Venom? Asps? Me? Like, yeah, it's hard to hear. Paul closes this line of thought by saying, friends, the law was never meant to save you. It was meant to show you that you need saving. See, as New Testament people, we, 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 we do a weird little dance with the law sometimes, not knowing what it's for, what to do with it, or, you know, people come to us and, you know, like, well, it says not shave your beards. Like, oh, what do I do? Email the pastor. Like, we, do, we, don't, we don't know what to do with the law. Overarchingly, the law is meant to be an x-ray. That's what Paul's saying here. What does an x-ray do? It gives you an image so you can see what's broken. It gives you an image so you can see what a proper diagnosis would be. What's the proper diagnosis that Paul is pointing out? We all lack righteousness. We're under sin. We were born broken in sin. It's not even all our fault, but we want to sin too. The same way that an x-ray doesn't heal you, it just offers you up next steps. The law doesn't fix your sinfulness and it won't heal you either. What's the law meant to do? Drive you to Jesus. It's meant to show you over and over and over, man, I didn't do that one, I can't do that one. Jesus, I need you. The beauty of the Savior and his perfection, because every place you look at the law and see your imperfection, you get a chance to see the perfection of Jesus. It's meant to make our hearts overjoyed that every way that we have fallen short, we're not going, I'm going to sin all the more so the grace should abound. We're going, when I sin, thank God that you sent Jesus. Though we have been corrupted by sin and our hearts need repair, God sent Jesus exactly for that reason. Yeah, it's hard to see the picture that Paul's presented at the beginning of, of Romans. It's difficult to see the weight of how deeply sin has marred us. Like, ah, it, I, don't, I don't like it. What the immeasurable grace of Jesus is meant to wash that away. Get a clear picture of who you are and then a clear picture of why God sent Jesus. As we sang the song just a little bit ago, I think that's what makes us sing how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would send his only son to make a wretch, me, a wretch, his treasure. Why, why would you save me? Why? See, when we fully grasp the desperation of our situation because of sin, then we can with joy be driven back to Jesus. So much like the past several weeks, if you've noticed, our endings have just been a whole lot the same because the message is really the same. He's just looked at it from different angles of the same call. No matter how dirty you think you are, no matter if you think you're the worst sinner and I've just got to figure out more and I've got to do more and I, like, I've got to figure out how this thing works more and I've got to like fix a couple patterns more. I, I, like I got to clean up a little bit before I can kind of get to him. If you think that you're dirty beyond repair, Christ has come for you. You can't out him. This is the beauty of it. He paid 
his blood so that you could be redeemed. For the worst of the worst sinner, if that's who you think you are, call out to God and he will save you. Don't wait. Christ has come for the sick. This is the message that he said all over when he came in in the New Testament. I've come for the sick, not the healthy. Which means the people who don't think they're that bad, that's, that's not the people I've came for. It's the ones who know. Those who are much or are, are forgiven, they, they, they understand the love of Jesus more. Don't think that you've outsinned. Just call out to God and he will save you. If you've been a church member for practically all of your life, serving and showing up and doing the quote-unquote right things and being moral and conservative or whatever you think is right, none of that saves you, but God will this moment if you ask him to. I can't say it enough. Do not rest in your resume. Do not rest in assumptions. Surely, surely he has saved me because I, I spent... 15, 10, 20, 30 years in church, surely don't, don't do that. Don't rest in your rituals. Don't rest in your religion. Do not assume you're saved because you're not as bad as other people. Don't assume that you're saved because of your membership or your baptism. Today, confess your sinfulness to God and you will be. The rebel and the righteous both are meant to find peace in Jesus, rest and pardon and salvation in Jesus. Here's the thing we need to understand, though, but all must come to him to get it. This is the, honestly the worry that we've had at different times. I've talked to the elders and other people. How, how, do, you, how do you hold Reformed theology and not do, uh, as I grew up on when I was little, altar calls all the time, but still go, hey, you have to come, though. Don't assume. Don't skip the part of coming to God. Ask him to save you if you never have. I would love to pray with you if you don't understand what that means. The basics of it are, I'm those things. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, will you save me? I don't even know fully what that means, but I, I, I can't pay for that stuff. Will you, Jesus, stand in my place? I confess I'm a sinner in need of you. I want to follow you. I'll try and figure out what that looks like. Save me. The irreligious and the religious both. Church, if you're here and you've been working, resting in the work of Jesus, then praise God for that. Please don't puff out your chest in superiority. It's a grace and a mercy. He's been good to you. I'd say pray that he keeps working. Here's the other thing. Pray that he saves other people through the way you live. It's the beauty of this. If you are lost in religion, call out to God, he'll save you. If you're lost in irreligion, it doesn't matter how bad you think you are. Call out and he'll save you. And if he has saved you, worship him. You did none of that. This is the beauty that Paul wants us to see. We've gone through a long road. Band, you guys can come back up. Next week, we're going to hit the righteousness of Jesus. We've seen on repeat the unrighteousness of the, the, the irreligious and the religious. We're going to see the righteousness of Jesus and begin to find joy of understanding that that is credited to us, not through any effort or labor or thing that we have done. We're going to hit the good news coming next week. I pray that you'll be here for that. If there's an appropriate response for you today, though, don't leave without it. Please don't assume. Please don't think that you don't need to pray and ask. God, I thank you for your word. We pray that you help us. I pray that we'll see ourselves rightly. Holy Spirit, will you let us see the beauty of who you are and what you have done, God? We need you. We need you to work in us, Spirit. I pray, Lord, that whatever stands in the way, whether it's years of faith, years of being good, Lord, I pray that we would lay those down to see you. Lord, I pray that the 
the perceived power of religion would not be salvific for us. Let us call to you, Lord. I pray that fear or insecurity or even just shame of coming later on when you've been a part of church for so long, that that would just evaporate away. God, call the religious son home, the religious daughter home. Lord, for those who know that they have not followed you, I pray that their hearts would feel the reality of you calling them and they would see that as your love. God, you have sent Jesus for the lost ones. I pray that you call them. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. You're slow to anger and so kind. Through the reality of what you have done, I pray that our hearts would call out in worship and gratitude today. You've done a great work. You've been so kind. I pray that you may.